This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. With its sleek, aggressive design, improved powertrain for better performance and fuel efficiency, plus standard Toyota Safety Sense technology, there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Visit toyota.com for details. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See Owner's Manual for additional limitations and details. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 10th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Deputy News Editor David Malikoff joins Alexa Billow to discuss the role of science and evidence in policymaking. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on why grizzly bears are dying on Canadian railroad tracks. This is a relatively new problem for about two decades now. This has been happening and these bears have been getting killed by trains more and more often. How long have bears and trains been interacting, Dave? Well, Sarah, we're talking about a railway that winds through the Canadian Rockies and bears have used the tracks since Canada's first national park was created in 1885, they spend a lot of time gorging on the buffalo berries. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what those are <laughs> that thrive. Uh, and uh, the tracks are really important for the bears because a lot of other animals get hit by trains, which is good for bears because they can just sort of feast on the roadkill. And so now we're starting to see more bears being killed by trains. How many bears are we talking? Right. So now bears themselves are getting hit. We're talking about 17 grizzlies killed by trains since 2000. Now, that may not seem like a big number, but the local population is only about 60 grizzlies. So it's actually, that's a huge hit to the population. So what's changed in this part of the world? You mentioned it's a national park. It, it, what's going on in this environment that researchers think might be causing this greater risk to the bears? Well, yeah, that's the million-dollar question, or at least one million Canadian-dollar <laughs> question, because that's how much a group of researchers got to start investigating why this was happening. And between 2012 and 2017, these researchers, they walked the railway, they stayed the tracks for clues, they put GPS collars on the bears to sort of figure out what was happening with them, to try to figure out what was happening with local wildlife. And what they figured out was, over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of changes around this Trans-Canada Highway. 
highway's been expanded, that's brought in fencing and a system of wildlife underpasses and overpasses that have really changed the way wildlife move through these parks. And what they think is when the patterns of the wildlife have been moving, so have the patterns of the bears that follow uh, this wildlife and hunt the wildlife. Hmm. So one of the things they mentioned is that there is grain being left on the tracks. Is is that something that bears are eating? Well, right. So that's another problem is that these trains are sometimes spilling grain. The bears feed on the grain, but also some of these animals feed on the grain. And there's actually a couple stretches of track that seem to be particularly bad kill zones. And these seem to be places where perhaps the movement of animals has changed. So there's more animals moving over these tracks and more bears following these animals. And another issue with these particular places is, at least with one of them, they're on these curves. So it's actually really hard to hear the train coming. Now, that may have been an issue before because there weren't bears there to not hear a train coming. <laughs> but now you've got bears there and they're not hearing the train coming. That's sort of a recipe for a bear strike. Obviously, one thing would be to do would be to stop spilling grain on the tracks. What about these other problems? Are there any other interventions that might help with you know the shape of these tracks or the presence of prey animals near them? Well, one idea is actually um, to create a device that would detect passing trains and relay a warning signal, and this could include flashing lights or a dinging sound that would alert wildlife, like, hey, a train's coming, get off the tracks. And they think that some of these interventions could actually reduce the number of bear kills by half. Now we have a story on cleaner fertilizer. Advances in agriculture have led to huge improvements in the availability of food. But these technologies like irrigation and fertilizers do have their downside. Let's talk about fertilizers specifically, Dave. What are some of the problems when we put a lot of nutrients on fields? Well, one of the big problems is that these nutrients disappear very quickly. They evaporate or they get washed away. That's bad for farmers because it's not very efficient. You're putting a lot of fertilizer there, but a lot of that fertilizer is not doing its job. But also when these fertilizers get into runoff, water runoff, and get into lakes and streams and the ocean, that can be really bad for the local ecosystem. So the new fertilizer that we're going to talk about today, it's based on this chemical called urea. So let's talk a little bit about that and what else goes into this new formulation. Right. So urea is a nitrogen-rich organic compound. It's found in human urine. Very good fertilizer. But the problem is it's water-soluble and volatile, which means that irrigation or rain can sweep it away pretty quickly. So what researchers did in this new study was they wanted to find a way to bind up the urea to sort of keep it from disappearing so quickly. And the idea they hit upon was sort of creating something that's kind of like a time-release drug capsule. And what they did was they attached urea molecules to hydroxyapatite, which is a constituent of human bones and teeth. And basically what this did was the chemical bonds prevent urea from decomposing too quickly, sort of keeps it around in the crop so it doesn't disappear. And the other nice thing about it is that this compound is also rich in phosphorus and calcium, which are elements that plants also need to thrive. When they tried this new fertilizer in the lab and in the field, were they able to you know, show that it required smaller amounts, that this would be less expensive? Yeah, that was what was really interesting. They got about 10% more rice yield mm-hmm. using this new fertilizer, which doesn't seem like a big amount, but they actually used half the amount of urea to do that. So that actually could be a big cost savings to farmers right there. And this Field testing was done with rice. Is there anything special about rice as a crop that made this more useful? Is this going to work for other things like wheat? So the next step is to test this on another big 
global crop tea. But the question with some of these crops is if they aren't as consistently watered like rice is, is this new formulation going to be as much of an advantage? And that remains to be seen. Last up, we have a story on using the sun to purify water. Around the world, one in 10 people lack access to clean water. Now, researchers have made a prototype water purifier that is much faster and cheaper than currently available technologies. This is basically a solar still, right, Dave? Right. This is a device that's been around for literally thousands of years. And just to sort of envision it, basically what these things are, are these they're black bottom vessels and they're topped with a, sort of a clear glass or plastic. And what happens is the black bottom absorbs sunlight and the sunlight heats whatever water is in the vessel. And the water that evaporates doesn't have pollutants in it anymore, and it sort of sticks to the the glass or the plastic on the top, and you're able to sort of just suck off that water, and now you've got purified water. This is a really big issue for especially places in the developing world where access to clean water is is a rarity. There are devices out there today, but they're really expensive. They're also very big. Even the best ones have to be about the size of an office cubicle just to produce enough water for one person for one day. And Hmm. so the challenge is, can researchers develop something that's smaller and a whole lot cheaper? Some people have gone the direction of using nanotechnology to kind of seed the water and, you know, absorb heat in a different way. But that is also really expensive. So what's the tactic they took here? Right. Nanotechnology can be very expensive. So what this team did was they started out with some really cheap materials. One was fiber-rich paper, sort of like the paper that's used to make currency. The other one was something called carbon black, which is a cheap powder that's left over after the incomplete combustion of oil and tar. And they basically coated this paper with carbon black to make it really black, to make it very absorbent of sunlight. And then some of the other components of this device were polystyrene foam, which is the same kind of foam that's used to make coffee cups. And you can actually see a picture of this device on the site. But basically what they were able to do was create something that could be at least made per device for about five bucks. And that's for the lifetime of the device. So that's not $5 a day. That's $5 for as long as this device lasts. And when they tested it, they found it was really super efficient at converting sunlight into heat and really producing a lot of water. In fact, these $5 devices may actually be enough to provide the minimal water needed for a family of four per day. And it's much smaller. It's not the size of an office cubicle anymore, right? No, we're talking about something maybe for a family of four, something about maybe the size of the top of a card table. So so big, but a lot smaller than an entire office cubicle. Okay, so what's next? This is something that someone made in a lab out of all these cheaply available materials. What happens now? Well, right. So the researchers are looking to commercialize the work. Now, by commercializing it, they might be able to drive down the cost even more, which would make it even a better value proposition for people in the developing world. Okay. What else is on the site this week? Well, sir, we've got a story about hijacking bacteria to kill cancer. Also a story about a new film that could help you stay cool without the need for an air conditioner. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we're continuing to follow a story about the U.S. Department of Agriculture removing documents relating to animal welfare from its website and what might be behind that move. Also a story about the fate of grad students and postdocs in the U.S. that have visas and how the recent travel ban imposed by the Trump administration could affect their future here. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. 
This episode is also brought to you by CuriosityStream, a subscription streaming service that offers over 1,500 documentaries and nonfiction series from some of the world's best filmmakers. With content spanning from history and science to nature and technology, CuriosityStream grants you access to factual educational programs, far more compelling than the reality shows currently plaguing cable television. They even have original exclusive documentaries like Deep Time History, a three-part explanation of the universe's 14-billion-year history and origin, and also Stephen Hawking's Favorite Places, in which renowned physicist Stephen Hawking travels across the universe in a CGI spaceship, making stops at some of his favorite places from Saturn to Santa Barbara. CuriosityStream is available on almost any device, including iOS, Android, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV. And with plans starting at just $2.99 per month, you can access one of the largest nonfiction libraries available for less than a cost to buy a cup of coffee. Go to curiositystream.com slash sign up and use the promo code SCIENCEMAG to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series completely free for 60 days. That's two entire months free. Again, that's curiositystream.com slash sign up. Promo code SCIENCEMAG. CuriosityStream. Documentaries for the incurably curious. This week's episode is also brought to you by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference in your meal. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients, courtesy of over 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries across the United States. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required, there's no food waste. It's everything you need to make sustainable and delicious home-cooked meals in 40 minutes or less. Some of the meals available in February include cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice, udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs, roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad, and crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash sciencemag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. These are worrying times for scientists who want governments to base policy on the best evidence. Some pundits say we've entered a post-factual era. Viral fake news stories spread alternative facts. But is evidence-based policymaking dead? From chemical safety to early childhood education, how do we turn research into implementation? That's the basic question that science asks in a special section this week. Here to give us a taste of what's in the section is David Malikoff, an editor on the news staff. I'm Alexa Billow. Hi, David. Hey, Alexa. How's it going? So to start with, what's the take-home message of this whole special section? Is evidence being ignored by policymakers? Well, I think the unsatisfying answer is yes and no. So we're all familiar with uh, areas where evidence is being either ignored or misperceived uh, by policymakers and the public. So climate change, there are a lot of policymakers who are not persuaded 
that uh, we need to do anything about the buildup of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Another case might be childhood vaccinations, where you have a lot of policymakers and parents questioning the need for childhood vaccination. And so, of course, scientists feel like you know a lot of this evidence that they've compiled over many years is is simply being ignored. But the good news is that, especially in the Europe and the United States, you know, which have vast bureaucracies, many laws, and many of these laws mandate the use of technical expertise in setting standards, safety rules, things like that. So actually, evidence still has a very big role to play in a lot of government policies. Can you talk a little bit more about the bad news? Well, so in the package, we have a number of stories that look at sort of the bad news. Uh, we do a short story on needle exchange, for instance. This is the practice of going out and giving drug abusers clean needles for injectable drugs and collecting dirty needles. And despite the fact that, you know, study after study shows that these needle exchange programs not only don't promote drug use, but also don't promote crime related to drug abuse, policymakers and the public are really squeamish about these programs. They worry that they encourage drug use. They worry that they're going to promote crime. So as a result, a lot of policymakers have turned their backs on this idea. But there's good news, too. So what about examples of the good news? Yeah, so the good news is quite interesting. So one of the major stories we ran, my colleague Jeff Mervis looks at a pre-kindergarten math education program called Building Blocks. The message in this story is really twofold. One is that people have taken the time and energy to come up with a pre-kindergarten curriculum that appears to have benefits in teaching math to very young children. The other message of the story, though, is that sometimes it can be very difficult to decide exactly how to evaluate evidence. And so when you look across many pre-kindergarten programs, you see, one, this problem called fade-out, which is that the children benefit for a year or two, but after that, if you compare the what's called the treatment group, the kids who got the program, to kids who did not get the program – they essentially perform equally on certain kinds of academic tasks and things like that. So the story examines this question, does fade out mean that you should abandon these programs? Or does it mean there are complications in evaluating how well they work that policymakers need to take into account? So it's a nice example of a promising approach that when it's studied closely, the evidence becomes a little ambiguous but people say it doesn't really mean you should abandon the effort entirely. You just may need to change the way you evaluate the programs, the questions you ask, and policymakers need to think about what are the goals that they're actually trying to achieve. There's this chemical called BPA, which is used in the manufacture of certain kinds of plastics. And there's a little bit of evidence that it might be harmful to the point where manufacturers are labeling products that don't have it to make it seem better for you. But the kind of evidence that gets taken into consideration about whether BPA is harmful or not is really fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So a contributing correspondent named Warren Cornwall really looked into this question of how policymakers evaluate the safety of BPA. And it turns out to be a fascinating story. The short version is that back in the 1960s and 70s, there were some scandals involving laboratories that did testing of toxic chemicals. And as a result of those scandals, the federal government and others instituted very strict guidelines on how this testing should be done and the practices that these laboratories need to follow. They're called good laboratory practices. So this was a really badly needed reform, and it helped improve the science around toxicity testing quite a bit. 
Now, flash forward 30 or 40 years, many academic researchers have gotten into studying these kinds of questions, but for a variety of reasons, they don't follow good laboratory practices. There's a lot of paperwork involved. Also, they have the self-correcting mechanism of academic publishing involved there, so they don't feel like they need to follow some of these more regulatory practices. But the end result is that often academic studies that are using very cutting-edge scientific technologies will not be considered by regulators because they don't follow good laboratory practices. And to say they don't follow good laboratory practice does not mean that their research practice in general is not good. It's good with a capital G, and it refers to a very specific set of protocols and rules that they have to follow. I think that is right. That That is the feeling, particularly among the academics. They're saying, look, we're doing really good science. You guys should be paying attention to it. The regulators say, well, we have rules in place that are designed to help us decide what is strong evidence and what is not strong evidence. And so there's a conflict there. Luckily, in the case of BPA, some federal agencies have stepped in with funding and they're trying to bridge the gap between the two communities. They're trying to come up with study protocols and practices that all sides agree on and bridge this gap and allow regulators to get access to the best possible science. But it is an irony that a reform that was brought in to try to improve the quality of evidence available to policymakers may now be standing in the way. So one question the BPA story raises is, are regulators becoming kind of entrenched in the types of evidence they use and will accept compared to academic scientists who want to incorporate newer and more diverse types of studies. Yeah, I think the academic scientists would say that, you know, in some sense, government has become entrenched. Meanwhile, the progress of science moves on. There are new technologies. There are new techniques. We're able to use techniques that can see, for example, the impact of BPA in much more sensitive detail than we were able to see before, for example, on the growth of the brain or on the endocrine system and things like this, much more subtle effects. And I think one of the feelings among some of the scientists, the academic scientists who study this, is that currently the regulatory system does not pay as much attention to these very subtle effects, these studies that show subtle effects as they should. But there is a collaboration that is trying to bridge the gap specifically on this issue between regulators and academics. That's right. One of the institutes of the National Institutes of Health has put up about $30 million, and they are trying to have academic scientists and federal regulators and federal scientists sort of agree on techniques and methods that everybody would agree should be pulled into the regulatory process. It's been a little bit of a bumpy process. There's been disagreements about methods and things like that. But as the story makes clear, this is an effort to find some common ground and really improve the evidence base that regulators have to work with. Do you have any advice for scientists who want to get involved in policy debates? Well, as a matter of fact, we talked to a guy, Paul Kearney, who is an academic in the United Kingdom, and he has looked at the area of evidence-based policymaking very closely. He's written a book, uh, The Politics of Evidence-Based Policymaking, and he's thought a lot about how scientists should engage in this process. And in our story, he offers some do's and don'ts and some advice. His bottom line is, I think, like any stranger going into a strange land, learn the language, learn the landmarks, get to know who is who. So if you're a scientist going into policymaking, maybe find another scientist who's already engaged, who can sort of explain to you how things work, where the power lies. But I think the real, the bottom line that Kearney offers is be patient. 
Policymaking is a very complicated, very convoluted process. The path of evidence is not straight and narrow. Evidence does not necessarily determine the outcome, and you have to be prepared for that. And so he says, be patient. You may have to wait decades in some cases for the weight of evidence to leave its mark on policy, but in the end, it can really be worth it. So for example, in the special issue, we do short stories on cases where evidence has had a huge impact on the world. So for example, basic biomedical research that showed that a very simple solution of sugar and water and salt could help prevent kids from dying from diarrhea, cholera, millions of lives saved. Some very basic engineering work on auto safety that showed how anti-lock brakes combined with sensors on the throttle and the steering wheel could dramatically reduce the odds that a vehicle would flip over when it's making a, a swerving turn or something like that. That's a very unheralded little development that has saved countless lives because regulators around the world have started requiring the safety equipment on all kinds of cars. So there are really great examples where scientists have helped develop evidence that has made a huge difference in the world at large. So there's reason to be optimistic. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today, David. My pleasure. David Malikoff is an editor on our news staff here to cover a range of science-based policy topics from this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.